So last week, if you were here, we, we made this audacious claim that is about as welcome in our culture as a Vikings fan in a Green Bay bar. I think is how we put it last time. Um, we made the audacious claim that religion can be beautiful. Yeah, this thing that you're, you're not going to hear many places. But I want to thank Caitlin because Caitlin this week... She sent me a link to some of the latest research out of Harvard, Harvard University. They put out a study on Thursday. So just, what, four days after we made this audacious claim that religious can be beautiful, Harvard released a study. And here is um, a summary of some of the research that came out. So you can Google this, look this up, Harvard University. According to research by Harvard, people who, quote, attended... weekly religious services or practiced daily prayer or meditation in their youth reported greater life satisfaction and positivity in their 20s and were less likely to subsequently have depressive symptoms, smoke, use illicit drugs, or have a sexually transmitted infection than people raised with less regular spiritual habits, end quote. This is Harvard saying this. Can religion be beautiful? It can. Can religion be not beautiful? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was Thursday when I got that information from Caitlin. On um, Monday, I read an article that had a very different take on religion. And this came from a woman whose mom began bringing her back to church when she was just a kid. Her mom was going through a really tough time. And uh, so she started bringing her, this, this person who wrote this article and her daughter back to their neighborhood church. And at first, at first, the things that she was experiencing as a kid, they were the kinds of things that we want for our kids right here. You know, so here in her own words, here, here's what she started to experience for the first time as she was brought into this new community that welcomed her in, her neighborhood church. She said, I sought community, the sort that awkward preteens like myself searched for regularly with little or no luck. Suddenly, I had a voice. I was happy. In my church community, I was someone. I was someone. Now, we're going to leave this on the screen here for just a minute because we're going to talk about this for just a sec. Leah, the author of this article, she didn't fit in at school. She didn't fit in at her neighborhood. But she thrived at her church. Thrived at it. By the age of 13, Leah was serving as a leader for other teens. She was teaching her peers and younger kids about her religion. But if you can see the bottom, what, what the title of this article is, there wasn't a happy ending here. And today, Leah wants nothing to do with Christianity. Nothing. And it wasn't the disagreements with doctrine that put her over the edge. She had some disagreements with, you know, what that church believed. The issue that made Leah say, I am done. I am done with this, is the issue that's all over the headlines right now. I've got a section um, on my, my news feed that says it's called Christianity. And so it automatically populates with the hottest stories that this device links to Christianity. I checked it this morning. I checked where it says Christianity. What were the top stories? It had six. Guess how many of those six stories had to do with sexual abuse happening in churches? All six. All six. 
in Pennsylvania alone, 300 priests are accused of molesting a thousand kids. If you believe that this kind of behavior is wrong, no asterisks, this is wrong, and that it should not be tolerated, you're going to find agreement here. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. One of the things that draws me, there's many things that draw me to biblical Christianity. One of the things that draws me to biblical Christianity is that people in powerful positions don't get a pass. They don't get a pass. We, we have boundaries in our faith that apply to everyone. Apply to everyone. If anything, those who are in positions of power, we have greater controls, greater, greater accountability that's expected from us. But Christianity in general, it sets these boundaries that apply to everyone, to men and women, to rich and poor, to young and old, to the powerful and the marginalized. Now, we're not going to agree right now because we have a, people come from all kinds of backgrounds. We're not going to agree on every single boundary that Christianity puts in place. But with a show of hands, can we all agree that putting boundaries around dangerous and destructive behavior is a good thing? Can you raise your hand if you agree with that? Okay. Putting boundaries in place around dangerous, destructive behaviors, that is a good thing. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Each week we, we try to have a, a place where you can take some notes. Um, we try to say things that are note-taking worthy here. Um, and we encourage you to write this down. Everyone longs to be part of a community that puts boundaries around dangerous and destructive behavior. And in the series, this teaching series that started last week, what we're looking at specifically are these communities of faith that we see in the book of Acts that started to develop. And one of the things that we see these communities trying to do is to put God-honoring boundaries in place. Every community, religious, non-religious, every community needs boundaries. And as the early church did their best to live within these boundaries, they began to experience a kind of community that the world had never seen. Walls became started to tumble down. Diverse people began to care for one another and share with one another as if they were a tight-knit family. Well, Acts chapter 2, verse, verses 42 to 47 is probably the section that gets quoted more than any other section in all of Acts. It's a, it's a part that describes this new community that started to form. What I want to look at right now is what comes right before that section. And then as the, the teaching goes on, we're going to even look at what comes before that. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's take a look at what comes before, probably the most highlighted section in the book of Acts. Um, let's take a look at what comes right before Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bible. Let's look Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 41. And I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible um, at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today, each and every week. We keep a stack there by that black mailbox. If we ran out, let me know. We'll make sure we get you one of those. All right, here's what it says. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41. And with other words, Peter bore witness, and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about how many? 3,000 souls. That day were added 3,000 souls. Now, I encourage you to keep a bookmark there, because we're going to come back to this area. We're going to look at what comes right before it, this, this passage. And we're going to look at these events that led up to this remarkable moment. But let's, let's just pause for a second and think here. On that day alone, that day, 3,000 people who we're going to see didn't even all speak the same language. 
3,000 people opted in to a community that had a prescribed set of boundaries. And some of the boundaries that Christianity puts in place are actually boundaries around how we judge those who break the boundaries. In Christianity, there's boundaries around judging others. How many of you love, with a show of hands, to be judged all the time, constantly? (laughs) One. (laughs) How many of you, with a show of hands, don't love to be judged all the time, constantly? Reasonable people know that communities, we need boundaries. Reasonable people know this. But another reason why so many people are saying, I am done with religion is because they feel judged all the time, constantly. And they're saying, I'm done with this. There are so many people, they're seeking conversation. Maybe they want to learn more about God or they want to express to say, here's why I think you're wrong. People want to have a conversation. People want community. But so many people, when it comes to religion, they just hear lectures. They only hear and get judgment. I grew up in a tradition where the pastor wore a robe. And I'm wearing a robe this morning. How many of you like it? This is my, my robe. And I'm wearing it on purpose because I'm about to show you what's under this robe. And I, I had, if I had started with this, what's under the robe, there would have been a whole lot of judging, I think, happening before we even got started. So I'm going to do a slow reveal. So don't even look at as I'm taking this off so you can kind of ease into it here. Um, and you can write this down while I change out of my robe. All right? Everyone longs to be a part of a community where perfection is not a prerequisite. All right? All right. Let me tell you why I'm wearing this robe. This robe. Let me tell you why I'm wearing this. How many of you saw the game Sunday night, Packers, Bears? Wow. Wow. You do not have to be a Packers fan to appreciate the performance that Aaron Rodgers put on on Sunday night. Wow. Aaron Rodgers is a quarterback for Green Bay, and he had an incredible game. But it did not start off incredible. Man, the Bears had just acquired a monster linebacker. His name is Khalil Mack. Yes. He was dominating in that first half. Get this, a defensive player. This is just the first half. He had a sack. He had a forced fumble. He had an interception and a touchdown in the first half. This guy was a monster. And things went from bad to worse when another guy who weighed 294 pounds crashed into Roger's left leg. And Roger's had to be kind of he hobbled off the field. He had to be taken into the locker room on a cart. And everyone's like, uh-oh. It was, it's, it's done. Long story short, Rogers comes out of the locker room at halftime. <laughs> and with his team down 20 to 0, he tells his teammates, you do your job and I'll do the rest, he says. And on one leg... He rallies his team, and they come back to win 24 to 23. Ow, says. <laughs> Is that Hebrew or Greek? Is that? <laughs> oh, man. I tell you, so 
how, how, do you, how do you match a performance like that? You don't. Aaron Rodgers doesn't match a performance like that every week, right? Especially not this week. Especially not this week. Even Aaron Rodgers can't play like Aaron Rodgers all the time. How many of you know religious people and how we can be sometimes? And we set this bar that is impossibly high for everyone else. And then we judge one another when we don't clear that bar that no one can clear except Jesus. Religious people often expect folks to clear a bar that is set so high that no one can clear it. A couple of you sent links to me um, of a recent story, true story, pastor in California. He preached a sermon about overcoming anxiety on Sunday and on Saturday he took his life, leaving behind a wife and kids. Religious people, this happened during our series on anxiety. Religious people often feel this tremendous pressure to meet impossible expectations. With a show of hands, I know I've asked for this a lot here, but I just want you to know you're not alone. With a show of hands, how many of you want to be a part of a community where perfection is not a prerequisite? Absolutely. This is another thing that draws me to Christianity. It draws me to Christianity. There is hope for people like me who make mistakes every day. And I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that like, oh, nobody's perfect. I say that it grieves me because there's a world that needs to see Jesus through us. And there's a world that doesn't see Jesus through us because people like me continue to fail at that daily, right? But one of the things, one of the things that that gives me hope is that this is the world that God created. And he, in part, created this world where others can see who he is even in our weakness. In our weakness, he is made strong, oftenly. And one of the things we do regularly here at this church is we we practice a sacrament called Holy Communion. And one of the things that makes Holy Communion so beautiful is that perfection is not a prerequisite. In fact, if you think, I am worthy to come and receive some kind of blessing from God, the Bible says you're a liar. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we merit. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of grace. It is a gift from a father in heaven who rejoices and throws his arms wide open when prodigal sons and prodigal daughters come home. In Christianity, there is no need to try to hide or cover up who we really are. In fact, we're invited to bring our broken selves and to to look for help from one another and encouragement and hope and healing. And what the Father does for us in welcoming us home, the Son who taught us to do for one another, right? So, let's put these two things together. Let's try now to take this idea that we need and want boundaries and we need and desire grace. I encourage you to write this down. Imagine a community. This is, again, why I'm so drawn to Christianity. It brings together so many wonderful things in, in, a, in a beautiful tension. Imagine community with beautiful boundaries for broken people. Imagine a community that both puts healthy boundaries around behaviors and it also puts a supportive arm around broken people 
who are trying to put their life back together again. Isn't that the community that we long for, right? A community where there's accountability and also a community where when you have questions, when you have struggles, when you need help, you are welcome to bring that into the community without feeling constantly judged. These two things, grace and truth, they not only came together in Christ, they come together in a passage in Acts that I absolutely love. It's found in Acts chapter 11, verses 17 through 18, if you want to look it up. And we're going to explore the story that comes before this in greater depth in week four. We're going to look at chapters 9 and, and 10. But here's a quick teaser, otherwise it won't make sense what I'm about to say about Acts 11. In 9 and 10, there's this disciple of Jesus named Peter. And there's a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And each independently received visions that brought their storylines together. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit was poured out, not just on Cornelius, but on his whole household. So Peter experiences this unexpected turn of events. He comes back to Jerusalem, and he's met by religious people who are saying, why did you eat with those people? What were you thinking? And Peter explained what happened and how the Holy Spirit was poured out on Cornelius' household just as the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the religious people who were pointing the fingers. And then Peter says this, Acts eleven seventeen through 18, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to say that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, to their credit, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted, and here is a phrase, lock this in. This is Christianity. This actually separates Christianity from many other religions. He has granted repentance that leads to what? Repentance that leads to life. Elsewhere, the scripture says, his commands are not burdensome. Repentance that leads to life. There's a place to write that in your notes. Christianity invites us to experience repentance that leads to life. Repentance, if you're not familiar with this word, is a word we use to describe the act of turning away from behaviors that aren't God-honoring and turning towards God. In biblical Christianity, repentance leads to life. Every rule that God establishes has a reason. Every rule has a reason. Challenges, we can't always see the reason. In fact, sometimes you're wondering why. Why is this rule even there? Something I noticed for the first time this week is how similar Peter's experience was with Cornelius and having a meal with them and, and, and how everybody reacted, how experienced that was with something that happened to Jesus. Remember that Luke recorded both of these stories. Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts. And you see these parallels um, between Luke and Acts. Luke says this, records this in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, that's important, leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners to what? Repentance. And as both Luke and Acts unfold, it is revealed that the sinners are who? All of us. All of us. We're all sinners and we're all in need of repentance. And all of us are invited into a very specific kind of repentance. A repentance that leads to life. Not greater shame. Not greater guilt. A repentance that leads to life. And for all of us, as I said earlier, there will be times in the scriptures, and I'll add this, there will be times when the Spirit will ask us to do things that don't appear to be life-giving. God's reasons for certain boundaries are obvious. Don't hurt kids. Obvious. Some of them aren't obvious. God, why? Why? Why do you set a boundary there? The God of the Bible asks us to trust him in all things. To leave everything behind. To trust him in all things, even when it's hard, even when we don't understand. And one of the things we can see in the book of Acts is that these folks, they were able to see some things that convinced them and compelled them. This is the way. This is a, a religion that I, I got to be all in with. And we looked at this a little bit last week in chapter 1. We looked at chapter 1. We spent some time there. We saw that Jesus was not like other religious leaders of his day or before his day or since his day. In chapter 1, after appearing to at least 500 witnesses after he had been killed. That's pretty remarkable. 500 witnesses after he had been killed. And after promising that they would soon be empowered by the Holy Spirit and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. After that, if that wasn't enough, Jesus then ascended into a cloud. This was no ordinary rabbi or teacher or religious leader. And if rising from the dead and ascending into a cloud isn't enough, let's look at what happens in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, my first memory of this word Pentecost came in something our church called confirmation. Do we have any other confirmation survivors out there? <laughs> confirmation, yeah. <laughs> confirmation. Confirmation can be a great thing. It's like religion. It can be great and it can be not great, right? Mine was somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. So Pentecost, when they taught us about Pentecost, they rightly taught us that it was the birthday of the church. What they didn't teach us is that it didn't start then. It wasn't a new thing. It has these deep, 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 rich roots in Jewish sacred history. The name Pentecost is actually a Greek word. It means 50. Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost celebrated the first fruits of a new harvest in the promised land after centuries of slavery in Egypt. And in later Judaism, Pentecost also became associated with the giving of the law and the making of the covenant in Mount Sinai. So, put those together. Pentecost, it's more than just a new thing. It's more than the birthday of Jesus' church. This is the fulfillment. It is the fulfillment of things that Jewish sacred history pointed to centuries earlier. 
50 days after the Passover, the church was about to experience the first fruits of a new covenant. And it began with the sound of what? A rushing wind. A rushing wind. And that is so significant because wind in Jewish history, wind was, a, was associated with the Holy Spirit, which would bring new life. You might want to write down Ezekiel 37 and look at the parallels between the Holy Spirit and Pentecost and, and all these things and, and what was going on then and now. I cannot begin to describe the anticipation that those who knew their sacred history may have began to feel and how that might have cascaded across this room as they hear this rushing wind, which signals the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit bringing life. They had placed so much hope in Jesus, but during the Passover... He was taken into custody and he was beaten and he was put on trial. He was condemned to death on a cross. There was so much darkness, so much confusion on Passover, but now comes Pentecost. And Jesus, between these two times, had appeared to them alive. He had spoke to them. He ascended into a cloud, just like the prophet Daniel had prophesied. We talked about that last week, but what we didn't talk about last week, in the book of Daniel, we also find a prophecy that the children of Israel would be in exile for 490 years. And now, about 490 years later, they're in a room. There's a resurrected Jesus who has ascended in the cloud. And now there's a rushing wind moving amongst them. Would you have goosebumps if you were in that room right there? Thinking, could this be it? Could this be the day that we've been waiting for? Since creation, since, since humanity blew it in the garden, could this be the time? And look what happens next. Acts 2, verses 3 through 4. And divided tongues as a fire appeared, and it rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Fire, another symbol of God's presence that was there at the time of Moses, the cloud of this pillar of fire, a burning bush. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And the sound of this multitude came together. And at the sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in what? His own language. Again, never made this connection before. Jesus, when he says in Acts 1, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? Ends of the earth. It, it wasn't just being happening kind of a couple years after this when, the, when they got kicked out and persecuted and spread. That was being fulfilled when? On Pentecost, too. People from every language are hearing, they're being witnessed to of these great things. And the people who are experiencing this, they began to realize this is it. We're a part of something. This is not just religion as we've known religion. There is something different here. There's a resurrected Christ. There is a spirit that is at work. There, there are prophecies, ancient prophecies that are being fulfilled in our day. And in the midst of this amazing, amazing, amazing turn of events, the Bible in true to form is honest and says not everyone was ready to buy in. Even in the midst of all this, the Bible is very honest. And the Bible acknowledges some people in that crowd who are seeing all these amazing things, they go, they're drunk. 
The Bible's honest, all right? So Peter, let's go back to our text and see how Peter responds to this. Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. And he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. Peter says, these are not Packers fans. He says, come on, tell me there's not some truth to that. Tell me there's not some truth to that. He says, it's nine in the morning. It's nine in the morning. And then he picks up with this, verse 16. He said, here's what's happening here. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall see dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I'll show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Amen. This is not just another religion. Not just another religion. Another thing I never noticed before are the parallels here between Luke and Acts. Here in Acts, we see that God is doing this thing that he's establishing. He's saying, I'm doing this thing. And, and as this thing is being established, they are tying it in with these ancient prophecies. They're saying, this is that. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, Luke. So I'm looking back through my, through my Bible and I'm looking at Luke. And I think Luke is the only one who records this incident as Jesus is beginning his ministry. What does he do in Nazareth? He comes, he opens up a scroll, prophet Isaiah, and he says, this is fulfilled. I think that was intentional. And these people are realizing God is doing something special. We're a part of this. This is not something new in the sense that there is no precedence. This is a continuation of what God has always been doing. In the Old Testament, in the New, God is doing a work. And that, again, is one of the things that draws me to Christianity. Because I do not want to give my life, as short as it is, I do not want to give my life to just a belief system that works for some people. If I'm going all in with this, I want this to be the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know of anything like Christianity that can point to these historical events and can point to experiential evidence. Because... I've experienced some of these things, and I've experienced some of these things with many of you. I've seen young men prophesy, and I've seen young women dream dreams, and I've seen things that we cannot explain any other way. Even though I try to tell myself there's another explanation, man. And and what I want to encourage you to do, if if you're new to our church, um, this isn't a pitch, so if you can't make it on the 30th, we can schedule another time and I can talk to you. But on the 30th, we're going to have a meeting right down the hall, explore membership. We're going to have it at 915 and 1045. encourage you to come and find out, and you'll hear some of these stories that God is doing in our midst. God is doing things. He's still active. We are in the end game. And God has come, and prophecies are being fulfilled. And we're living in an age where God is pouring out his spirit on young men and women and on people of all ages and rich and poor and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And I've seen it, and I've experienced it, and I don't know anything like this. One of the things that struck me about the article and actually hurt me about that article, the one I referenced earlier written by that woman named Leah, is that is not what she was experiencing at her church. 
you know, I read the whole article, and, and, I, and I, I tried to go back and say, am I, am I missing something here? But no, this is, she wrote about loving the community that welcomed her in, and that's a great thing. She wrote about loving the attention. She loved that finally she was the center of attention, which often isn't a good thing, but she was loving the opportunity that she could use her gifts and her talents to help others. And then when it came to the Jesus part, it was, eh. When it came to the God part, it was, eh. When it came to prayer, she goes, ah, I didn't really do that. No mention of the Holy Spirit. And she writes this. This is a direct quote from her, her article. She says, I don't really want, nor do I need religion in my life anymore. I found plenty of community elsewhere. Well, what she was describing wasn't Christianity. What she was describing is something you can get elsewhere. You can find that in other religions. You can find that at a country club. You could find that on a sports team. And that's okay and that's good. I hope you find community in these other areas too. But what you're describing then is not Christianity because Christianity is more. Christianity is more. And as their lives or their eyes in the book of Acts, as this new community, as their eyes were opened to the true nature of who Jesus of Nazareth was and the life that they were invited into, here's how they responded. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 38, which take us just about up to the verse that we started with. Now when they heard all this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Several sources I looked at reminded me of how this is a key distinction here because those of us who grew up in, in churches, we can forget how remarkable what we just read is. These people were not just called to get some religion, pick something that works for you. This was very specific. You are repenting of everything other than Christianity and you are being baptized in the name of Jesus who this is Pentecost, this is 50 days after the most powerful people on the planet crucified Jesus. You're being baptized into that name and renouncing all other powers and principalities. Is that a conversion? Yeah. Would, would that fit in the category of God, this doesn't all make sense to me. This doesn't feel like repentance that leads to life. Can you see that? But how could they deny what was happening all around them? And in that time and in that place, 3,000 people made a radical conversion to the way of Jesus, a way that was different than the ways of their culture and very different than the religions that they had been practicing. And if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart this morning, either to rethink your religion or to realign your life with Jesus of Christ, we want to welcome you home. Welcome you home. There's a place to write this down in your notes. We extend this invitation to you. We invite you to place your faith in the one who embodied grace and truth. Because you're not putting your faith in a religion. That can only take you so far. You're putting your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a faith that is grounded in historical events. Christianity is a faith that sets protective boundaries. Christianity, rightly practiced, is a faith, faith where there's grace and there's a pathway for reconciliation with God and another. Christianity is a faith where Jesus of Nazareth is still alive and is working in and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we would be honored to welcome you into this broken and messy and imperfect and beautiful family of God. Let me pray and 
The worship band's going to come up and they're going to seal this with a fantastic song. Let's pray. Father, we're so